1: And now here's your host, Grand Canyon whitewater guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela.
0: Today, The Trail Less Traveled is being recorded on a beautiful, slightly chilly March morning. And we're sitting right outside of the Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks headquarters. And I'm sitting here with Mike Thompson, Mike Thompson is the Region 2 Wildlife Manager for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And Mike has been working for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks for 40 years. Mike, I just want to first say thank you so much for making the time and energy to join me today on the trail Us traveled.
1: Oh, you bet, thank you.
0: And my first question for you is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood?
1: I grew up in western New York. and. We who grew up in Western New York hasten to correct and make sure that people understand that that's Western New York State, which is 300 miles or more from New York City. That's an important thing to some of us, at least. And so it's an entirely different world than what people might think of in New York when they think of New York. It's not city life. It's the opposite. It's a place where... Nobody goes. <laughs> when people tell me that, oh, I know right where you live, Allentown, New York, I say, no, you don't. Well, once in a great while I get surprised, but it's a pretty isolated place where main roads really don't end up going through, and they're, it's not on the way to anywhere. It's rolling hills. It's quite hilly, If you were used to the plains, then you'd call it mountainous, but it's not really mountains. And they're all forested hills, densely forested hills with hardwoods, with beech and birch and maple. A little bit of white pine in there, so for a little bit of color. In the fall, it is one of the places where, if we knew how to market in western New York, you would have a lot of visitors looking at colors. It's incredible. And just miles and miles of it from the hilltops, you can see other hilltops. It's a terrific place to get lost because every place where you start to go downhill, you could end up in a different hollow, which looks the same as the hollow you came from. And so I spent a fair amount of time lost, temporarily at least. It did not feel adventurous living there. I mean, nobody... I don't think anybody that grew up in that part of New York thought of themselves as living an adventurous life. And about half of us spent most of our time trying to figure out how we were going to get out of there. Not that it was a bad place to be. I loved it. But you want to see what else is out there, you know? And... I guess adventure in my life as a kid always began inside my own head, that strange place. And it was influenced heavily by what my dad did. My dad worked outdoors, and he worked on a oil lease. And so that part of New York State has an economy, or did have an economy, of oil production. Well, if you're familiar with oil production like on the plains or in Oklahoma or in North Dakota or wherever and you have these big oil wells and so forth and jacks and apparatus that are moving up and down to pump the oil it's okay to imagine that if you want to pretend you're in western New York but then you have to set that in the middle of a dense forest and so part of the chores of working in the oil fields is maintaining paths and trails and roads to get to the jacks that are in the middle of the forest and so it was an amazing thing to me growing up you would I got to work in the oil fields with my dad eventually which was a cool grown-up thing for a kid and you would hear the engines that powered the jacks that pump the oil, and you. So there's a big, one-lunged steam engine kind of thing, powered by natural gas. They go boom, 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 and the hills would just echo. And you would hear that, and you'd hear the squeaking of the apparatus working through the posts that you'd go along and grease so that you didn't wear the posts out, so you didn't have to replace them. And you'd hear all that all day long while the work was going on. And then when you'd shut down to go at night, the first thing you'd hear would be a chickadee. And it'd just be quiet and hear the chickadee. First thing in the morning, you might hear a pileated woodpecker tapping, you know, and a, and a distinctive tap. So... I was always influenced by what other people were doing and what my mind would do with that information. So I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be strong. He was quiet, and so I was quiet by genetics, you know. But also by example. He minded his own business, and I've not done very well at that, but he minded his own business, and he got his deer every year. The spot where he hunted was not the easiest place in the world to get his deer every year, and I wanted to do that. And my dad was my hero. But then, so was about everything I saw on TV. We had a porch up on the top of White Hill where we lived in a company house for a while when I was a little kid. So we had a glassed-in porch. And out there, Ma had shelves of stuff around out there and so after a while she devoted all the shelf space to my little toys of cowboys and I would say Native Americans but that was the age I grew up, cowboys and Indians and horses and whatever else you know might have been going on so I had all these displays and I had hundreds of figures that she'd pick up at the grocery store when she went shopping and, and I was always imagining things while that was going on. Well, I was not that guy. I was a kid on a mountaintop, well, such as it was. A kid on a hill without... My brother was 17 when I was born, and then he went off to the service, and so I didn't see much of him at all. So I was more or less an only child. And so there I was, and so I wasn't these people that I imagined. When I watched TV, I imagined being Roy Rogers, but I wasn't Roy Rogers, and I didn't really have anywhere with all to become Roy Rogers, and I wanted to be a mountain man, but I didn't see how there was a future in that or how to become a mountain man, and I wanted to be Mickey Mantle. Uh, That didn't pan out, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to be a basketball pro and that didn't pan out. And so all these things. How in the world do you do that? You know, as you, how do these people become these people? You know? Well, the way it came to me, being kind of a kid inside of himself, you know. One day I was out hunting rough grouse. We called them patridge, And they were there one day and they were gone the next and I thought "Why? Well, somebody knows where these birds are and how do they know that and I thought you know there are these state agencies and there are these organizations where people know stuff and they pay them to know stuff and i you, you got to be able to go to school for that you know other people learn from friends and family you know and then other people like me well their avenue is to go to school so I was good in school and so I thought well I'll work on that so I went to college and I went to Paul Smith's college in upstate New York just to get started and it's funny I had that thought but that thought didn't mature inside of me until I had some more life experience you know and so I went to this junior college and it was cool it was a really interesting experience first time away from home also in the middle of nowhere but with a thousand kids doing the same thing you know then that was the stepping stone I needed to realize okay if I'm gonna go and get a bachelor's degree a four-year degree then okay here's my ticket and go somewhere where I can live the real life instead of imagining it all the time I can a- act on it a little bit so had it kind of narrowed down to alaska and montana i thought well i'd probably die in alaska so i think there are people in montana go to montana and and montana (laughs) had wide open doors if you would pay the money they would take you and so i came to montana I. Almost screwed around and flunked out because I spent all my time backpacking. (laughs) Because I thought, well, okay, here I go. And it was the stupidest thing, too. I came here and I thought, well, I'm an outdoors guy. I've dreamed about being in the outdoors. I skipped the step of actually knowing anything. And so I wanted to jump from wishing to being... And I forgot to study... (laughs) And I was even opposed to it until I finally got that beat out of me and I realized that I need to study And, And after getting my bachelor's, I did have a good enough grade point average. I recovered and went back to New York and got some experience and met some people and more experience and worked my way back to Montana. I looked at a Montana Outdoors magazine. Had been watching Montana Outdoors magazines. And I remember the day I looked at the, about the author's stuff, Everybody seemed to be from Montana State University, from Bozeman. They had a master's from Bozeman. So I applied there, and they said, "Well, Come meet us and take a few classes, because you're a little marginal. And so I did, and I stuck. And I mean, isn't that the way with life? The ones who stick around will eventually get something, unless, you know... So I was one of the lucky ones, and Dr. Harold Pickton took a chance on me. And he was going to send me out to help a grad student in the summer with a grizzly bear project in Yellowstone. Well, I learned later that the guy spent most of the summer in a tree, various trees, with various bears uh, on his butt. I would have been killed, I'm quite sure. But the next day, so the day I got the job, the next day and says well I've got you a mountain goat project to get your master's this other job wasn't going to give me a master's degree and I had just got my head wrapped around being Mr. Grizzly Bear but fortunately I got the mountain goat project and got my master's working on mountain goats
0: The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad free podcasting please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com/trail less traveled today the trail less traveled is being recorded at the montana fish wildlife and parks headquarters we're sitting outside on a march morning There's dew on this picnic table, but we're surrounded by mountains. The sun is slowly starting to come out. My guests and I are shivering, but laughing it up out here. And I'm sitting here with Mike Thompson. Mike Thompson is the region two wildlife manager for Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. And he has been with Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks for 40 years. Now, Mike, I'd love to talk to you now about wildlife in Montana. And maybe we can start with the research that you did on mountain goats.
1: Well, the mountain goat research was something that would not be called research nowadays, um, because everybody comes to grad school already knowing how to be a biologist these days. They come with superb credentials. In my day, or perhaps more to my own experience, I came to the master's program learning to be a wildlife biologist, which was what I thought college was about, and you're supposed to learn how to do these things, so it wasn't intense research. However, here's what I did. We went to the Rocky Mountain Front. The study area was the Rocky Mountain Front. It's along the interface between the mountains that rise straight up off the Great Plains of North America and that area right there on the knife edge between the Rocky Mountains up thrust from the Great Plains and then that flat Great Plains away from it, that's called the front. And mountain goats live on the front. In fact, I was there on Saturday. We drove back over, hadn't been for a while. I don't know, it's about 120 miles from here or something to the east. So there's a native herd of goats there, goats that came over the Bering Ice Bridge and came and are native to that area. And when I went to talk to the area biologists at the time in 1978, my major professor and I said, "Well, well, What do you want to find out? And they just started laughing. They thought that that was a riot. What a funny question because they wanted to know anything about these goats. And so uh, my first summer was a summer of great trial and error, trying to find the place, trying to find the goats, trying to learn my way around so that I could operate there, wondering if I was going to make it. So basically, I found the goats. The next year was uh, summer and fall of 79 on the front, and I had learned enough and got my feet under me to work on them. And so I was able to locate and identify a number of individual herd units, if you will, or extended family groups of goats that totaled about 130 from a place called Deep Creek to Birch Creek along the front. And like I said, they were clumped in these extended family groups. And they lived in the summers in alpine cirques, right at the top, the headwaters of drainages. The front runs northeast, southwest, and then it's incised perpendicularly every so often by these drainages. And at the heads of these drainages are these cirque basins, and that's where the goats like to be. There are reefs. In between that run north-south so it's a serious like waves on an ocean only then they're little rocks and they're stuck running north-south but then they're incised by these streams the goats live in the in the cirques and it's kind of empty in between of goats so they might be a few miles apart from each other the natural connectivity between these different groups of goats is is pretty low. It's kind of fractured. So they're pretty distinctive. And so in terms of management and harvest, if you harvest heavily in, in one particular group of goats that's real accessible, then they're going to have a tough time. If you think you're managing 130 goats, but really all the harvest is happening on 20, then you've got a mismatch of your prescription and what's actually going to happen in biology. Probably the thing that was most useful that I stumbled onto and learned from historic data and some that I collected was that in June, when kids are born, you have lower kid survival, fewer kids survive determined to birth. During years when there was a heavy snowpack, in midwinter, mid and late winter. Presumably stress on the female and she's unable to bring the kid to term or it dies right away upon birth. And so heavy snowpack in the midwinter is an issue for mountain goats. Since that time, others have found that precipitation and the availability of moist growing vegetation in the summer period is really important for goats and, and also that there's a winter component. You can Precipitation in the form of snow can be a problem. And so it's a fine balance for mountain goats to live anywhere and to live in Montana, especially if and as the climate. Well, it's not if about the climate anymore, but what's if is how it expresses itself, how climate change expresses itself, and depending on how it expresses itself, mountain goats are right on the edge of it so it's it's going to be tough to watch it, important to watch
0: that's the voice of mike thompson with montana fish wildlife and parks you're on the trail less traveled we're talking about mountain goats for someone listening who doesn't know what it means to be a keystone species can you tell us the definition of a keystone species and talk to us about a couple keystone species in montana
1: Well, a keystone species classically is one that its presence and its occurrence makes the rest of the ecosystem work. And without it, the other species are lost to the system and the system itself changes completely. In Montana, and this is colored by my own experiences and therefore Restricted to my own experiences, they're probably way better examples. But I think of ungulates, deer, and elk as keystone species because they provide food. They consume food and adjust and influence vegetation communities with their they call it herbivory with eating and so the species that they pick are treated and managed by that feeding behavior and that affects communities vegetation communities that they live on which continues to support other species small mammals and stuff that live in those same communities in turn, the healthy deer and elk populations feed any number of predators and scavengers you're talking about. Wolves, grizzly bears, black bears seasonally on like elk calves and deer fawns, scavengers like coyotes, wolves, mountain lions uh, are predators and will also scavenge uh, wolverine, porcupines on antlers and on bones, a whole host of Species that are connected, vultures, you know, and carrying dead animals, and so there are a whole bunch of species that are connected to that herbivore, to that ungulate deer and elk. And if you take those ungulates away, there's a big hole there. There's a lot of biomass on there. There are species that are adapted to feed on those large animals that would then not have those large animals to feed on and there's a lot of nutrients and material that has contributed to the ecosystem through decay and so forth that would not be
0: That's the voice of Mike Thompson and as I look at him I can see a beautiful snow covered peak and Mike I was wondering if you could look up and tell us about who's flying above us right now.
1: Well, I can only hear them. I don't see them. There they go. Yeah, Canada geese. So I haven't been down the road lately in that direction, but apparently just a couple blocks away, the school has planted their lawn, and the geese are thick in the lawn. (laughs) (laughs) And our front office manager said that the school called her the other day and they said, what are we going to do about these geese? And she said, well, you might have to step out the darn wave of your arms. And that's about the end of it. But lately, it's been being here on the fringe of that school. It's been like a wildlife management area out here. It, it's been great.
0: We're speaking with Mike Thompson. He has been with Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks for 40 years. And we were just talking about some keystone species here in Montana, in particular ungulates. So we're talking about deer and elk. Now you're saying that if ungulates weren't around, there'd be a big hole. That would cause a big problem for a lot of other species, which makes them a keystone species. And there is actually a disease going on with ungulates, deer and elk, and moose, and it's called chronic wasting disease. So Mike, I was wondering if you could tell us what chronic wasting disease is and what Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks is doing to help stop the spread.
1: Well, chronic wasting disease is a disease, as you said, of mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk and moose in Montana, also caribou. Just to give an idea of its distribution and its occurrence, as I recall, it's present in 26 states the 50 in the United States in provinces of Canada there's occurrences in South Korea I guess also in Finland um, so there's some scattered awareness probably as well as actual distribution of chronic wasting disease it was first detected in well maybe anywhere In the 1960s in Colorado, in a research facility in Colorado, but nobody seems to know where it came from. And being what it is, it's not hard to imagine that it just happened one day. You know, you wonder how this, just what, from nowhere these things happen, but it's possible because, probable actually, because it's a protein. The chronic wasting disease is a misfolded I don't know why they fold, but it's a misfolded prion, they call it. And so it's not a bacteria, it's not a virus, it's not the kind of thing that you catch that way, you being the cervid. It misfolds, it's just a screw up somehow or the other, and that misfolding in the brain or spinal material of the affected animal causes other proteins to misfold and then that makes a mess. It causes disease that takes about a year for the incubation period, and then in a total of two years, the animal dies. It's always fatal, as far as we know. And they may go for a year without exhibiting any symptoms whatsoever. In fact, hunters kill healthy-looking animals, and then when you get them tested, sometimes they have CWD. Mm -hmm. So that makes it hard to detect and manage in the wild because you've got non-symptomatic animals that look fine, but they're out there spreading the disease. So these prions, when the animal dies, the prions can live. imagine them living on the surface of the ground where the, and living just laying there because they're not an organism. They're just laying there on the, in the environment on the surface where the animal excreted feces, where it peed, or just where it died. And the greatest concentrations of the prions, while they're in urine, they're in feces, they're in the blood, they can be in the spinal columns and in the brains Mm. of the animal that was infected, and that's where the greatest concentrations are, and in the lymph system of those animals. And so it can persist there for a long time just in the environment, for years in the environment, for other animals, other servants. So it's a deer to deer, deer to elk, elk to elk, and so forth, moose, disease. Other animals are not getting the disease. So I'm talking about the prions being in the environment, but also the CWD is spread from animal to animal animal to animal contact and so uh, if you think about that and think about the practical opportunities for an animal to catch and spread that disease from one to the next and so on it makes sense that it's a very slow-moving disease that detection that first occurred in Colorado in the 60s there's modeling to suggest it may have been out there for 50 years before anybody ever even noticed that something was going on, you know. I should mention, I suppose, that the later stages of the disease, so that two-year period that the animal is sick, the later stages of that disease are marked by a pretty visibly unhappy animal. It's drooling. It may have a, a stance that looks weird its feet spread apart you know and just kind of balancing and weaving there it might just make repetitive movements and so forth they get real thin and emaciated and they die when people call and they find that kind of a situation we want to make sure and check those animals and that's one of the first strategies of montana fish wildlife and parks to try to manage this is to keep track of where it is and what the relative prevalence of the disease is across the state in 2017 we started a real focused effort we've been doing kind of a random effort to check for the disease and test for the disease since the early 2000s but in 2017 we got serious about it uh, more systematic about it because most of our neighboring jurisdictions had chronic wasting disease in their populations against our borders so started checking for it and sure enough in Montana we found now for several seasons hunting seasons where we check harvested animals we found CWD to occur along the southern boundary of Montana and also pretty extensively across the northern boundary of Montana here in Region 2, we're in west-central Montana. It's not on the western boundary. At least, hey, we have not found it there. Maybe it is, but we have not found it there. And similarly, it's not across the central portion of Montana. So, And in our region, just by chance about how the lines are drawn, our region does not have CWD detected at this point. So that's a good thing. Which brings us to our second strategy. First strategy was surveillance. Mm -hmm. Where is it? Where is it moving? Is it moving? And the second strategy is prevention. So how can we keep its levels down and keep it from moving where it is not now? Well, can you really? What we can do is kill time. We can maybe stretch this period of movement out a ways and to such time that maybe conditions change and there's some opportunity to control it, whereas we don't have tools for that now. And so the key thing is to try to reduce the opportunity that we create for the pathogen to move. One of the key ways that we do that is to regulate the human movements of carcasses across the state and across states so now for a hunter for example uh, when a hunter kills an animal they have two options for removing that or for handling that carcass one option is they can remove the meat take the quarters leave the spinal cord and the head right there in the field where they killed it and just leave that there take the meat and that's a good way of disposal because you killed that animal in a particular spot cwd is already there there's nothing more you can do there so if you want to leave that material there that's as safe as any place to leave it you're in an infected area so leave it there and take your meat out because your meat it doesn't have CWD or isn't in a very readily transmissible form, and you're going to eat the meat. You're not going to dump it. So that was one, leave it where you found it, or take the whole animal home like lots of people like to do. They put it in the back of their pickup truck and drive it home and take care of it at home. Well, when you get done butchering and getting the meat off of the carcass, take the carcass to a certified landfill take it to your landfill. And then being buried like that in the landfill is a way to contain the CWD contaminated material so that other animals don't get on it. They're one a raven if the (laughs) (laughs) speaking of animals that will get on it, you know. (laughs) Those are the main things. If you think about where people can contribute to the spread of CWD think about the culture in Montana where we live over here in Missoula we love Missoula we don't have antelope we love to go hunt the plains in eastern Montana we'll drive three or four hundred miles to do that or mule deer because you can see them there instead of here not so many trees and so you drive over there and you're hunting deer while you're hunting antelope see I introduced a point of confusion antelope don't get it but people hunt deer while they're hunting antelope. So you go over to Eastern Montana and you get your deer and you, and you bring your deer back here. Then you go up in the forest or you go up along the county road or whatever, and after you've got the meat off of it, you dump the carcass out in the ditch. You know well, you shouldn't have done that in the first place, but lots of people do it. And so when you do that nowadays, Not only should you feel bad, but you've also contributed to the spread of CWD if that animal happened to have CWD. Because there tend to be hot spots over in the places where people go to hunt for mule deer in northeastern Montana and southeastern Montana and south-central. So people can jump CWD around by hundreds of miles, you know. And so that's an issue that we want to address by way of these regulations that require you either to leave the carcass where you shot it or make sure you take it to the landfill. Never should have been dumping stuff on the public lands or in your neighbor's fields, but definitely can't do that now. And then uh, another way to manage, and it's all maybe it's a combination of strategies that all together help, you know, no single one. the silver bullet but also if we manage for relatively few bucks because males of the species tend to be the ones that have the higher prevalence and spread it more readily Mm -hmm. so instead of managing to try to have a gajillion giant antlered animals you know on the landscape Uh, manage that more toward the meat hunting experience you know in more places and there are places where we do manage specifically for that opportunity to hunt a really cool looking animal or to be out amongst them you know while you're hunting something else well we're gonna have to be really vigilant in those places to see if we can manage our cwd risk as much as possible over time but on the keystone species point over time there's a potential for quite a bit of loss in terms of mortality and death of these servants of deer and elk in Wyoming and Colorado, they've had you know, 10 20 30% declines in their populations. And in one of the states, it was like a 20% decline annually that they were seeing in their populations. As time goes by, you know, you see that. But you get that when you have high prevalence, when you have a high proportion of your population that has CWD. If you can keep the prevalence at 5% or so, of a particular bunch of deer or elk. And then you have the opportunity to keep that from really multiplying and moving as fast, you know. If you get up much past that, then you're really heavily mixed in the population. It's pretty hard to do anything effectively to manage at that point. So we're not early enough by any stretch of the imagination to exterminate CWD, to eliminate CWD, we would have had to have caught the first three or four and and removed them right away, you know, to get that done, to be kind of extreme in my example. But in that time long past, you can tell that CWD's been in Montana for a while, and people have been moving it around for a while so we'll manage that and reduce that and limit that and just kind of try to keep it on a slow burn Uh, yet cwd is not the same thing it's part of a group of diseases that have similarities to the disease that's in uh, humans krutzfeldt jakob i think is gosh i hope that's how you say that it is not the same thing, but strange things happen, you know. And so the CDC and the World Health Organization recommend that people who are going to consume that meat, deer, and elk, moose, get the meat tested. Testing is readily available. You can perform the tests on a harvested animal yourself. We've got Fish, Wildlife, and Parks has a tutorial on our website that would help hunters or during the hunting season we'll do it for you and you can get the meat tested and then if the test comes back positive then you don't have to eat the meat Montana requires you to use the meat if you kill an animal otherwise if you kill a deer or elk otherwise but in the case of a positive CWD test you would not have to eat the animal and if the season was still open we would give you a tag to go back and we'd trade CWD for another chance. Get a general idea of overall. I saw this morning we've tested since 2017 we've sampled almost 18,000 deer and elk and we've found a little over 400 animals that have cwd so however that impresses a person that's what it is at this point
0: that's the voice of mike thompson he's the head of region two for montana fish wildlife and parks and he's been working for montana fish wildlife and parks for 40 years we're sitting outside of the headquarters here in missoula montana the sun has finally come out and i feel like a lizard just soaking it up (laughs) so lovely the dew is starting to melt mike I have a question from some local hunters here in Missoula. This question has been coming up recently a lot. The question is, what do we do if we're hunting and we see an animal who is exhibiting signs and symptoms of CWD?
1: If you see that out in the field, give Fish, Wildlife and Parks a call. Call us at our office or if you know somebody at FWP, give them a call. But any office in the state and they'll get you to the right person. And we'll want to know exactly where and when. And we'll talk with you about it if you're standing right there. Maybe we'll work something out with you to collect it. Maybe you'd stay there and help us find it or whatever it might be. More likely, what it seems like we run into is that people living out in the countryside will see an animal that's hanging around. And they don't tend to take off and go run off somewhere. It's an animal hanging around and in really rough condition. And then that's one that we want to remove and get tested. And then we would develop kind of a game plan for what we should do next. Uh, Do we think that there might be uh, an opportunity to remove animals in a small radius around that individual to see if we could clean up that spot, so to speak, and maybe get the CWD out of the area, talk with neighbors, understand what actually goes on there in terms of wildlife and what folks are doing in the neighborhood.
0: This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by Mountain Meadow CBD, which is locally grown and Missoula-based. Their hemp is grown organically, and all of the products are all organic as well. Mountain Meadow CBD is grown using living soil technique that helps ensure the symbiotic relationship between the plants, the soil, and the insects. CBD has many therapeutic benefits including, but not limited to, anxiety, joint pain, gut health, deeper sleep, depression, and as an immune system booster. Mountain Meadow CBD is a family-owned farm with very reasonable prices due to the fact that there is no middleman between you and your product. Mountain Meadow CBD offers CBD tinctures in different strengths, pain solve lip balm, vapes, and pre-rolls. You can find them at mountainmeadowcbd.com or on Instagram at CBD. Today, The Trail Less Traveled is being recorded at the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks headquarters. And I'm sitting here with Mike Thompson. Mike Thompson is the head of Region 2 for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And he's been with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks for 40 years. Now, Mike, this is a radio show, podcast, and we have listeners all over the world who might not know what it means to be sitting here surrounded by the mountains in Missoula. So I was wondering if you might be willing to just look around 360 degrees and describe to the listener what you see.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what I see is a mountain valley that I would have thought all by itself was the Great Plains when I was growing up because in western New York, there would be a 100 hills between here and Mount Sentinel over there across from us. I never realized that a valley in Montana would be huge like this, but we are ringed by mountains. They're not as craggy as I prefer when I came from western New York, but you don't have to drive very far from here to see really craggy stuff. But I also learned that these are plenty high enough and cool enough to wear a person out if you want to get up and climb them. And what I have learned here as I look around is that this is the biggest city that I ever saw before I came out here to Montana. So I went from New York to live in Montana, and coming from New York, I had to get to Montana to find the biggest city that I had ever been in, which doesn't seem right, but that's the way it was. What I've learned living in this place is that all you have to do is sit here at a picnic table in headquarters surrounded by trucks and picnic tables and bear traps and all sorts of different things and listen and watch and you got the same sun on you as somebody in the middle of nowhere and you got the same animals going by as somebody in the middle of nowhere in another month when the osprey come back there'll be a steady stream of them bringing fish across and materials to build their nests and if you go to any of the trailheads all the way around the valley, ringed all the way around the valley, or if you just take a drive up any of the old dirt roads and back roads and stuff, and if you will, pick your head up just a smidge, you know, and don't forget to watch the road. That's what my wife tells me. Don't. Forget. In fact, she watches the road for me. But if you pick your head up above the oncoming traffic, which isn't that much, and look around, it's as wild as it's ever been. And there are all sorts of critters. I mean, like right here. And as you get addicted to it, you find yourself going farther out. But you know, you get a little hungry, you come back and, and contribute to the economy. And that's wonderful. So one of the things that I've learned all the way from Western New York to having done a lot of cool stuff to now being older is that whole trip taught me that you're outdoors and you're in one of the most remote places wherever you happen to be. If you just open the window or take a peek outside or step outside or find those ways and pay attention to enjoying that, you can do it anywhere.
0: Well, Mike, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and energy joining me here today on The Trail Less Traveled.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Geez, I had no idea I would have fun. This is good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Mike, can we end your show with three bits of advice?
1: Well, I will offer advice for you to ignore. <laughs> 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 because that will help you. I was coming across from New York to Montana and stopped at Wall Drug in South Dakota and found a plaque that it said... No one is completely worthless, they can always serve as a bad example. So do the opposite of what I say. But my one piece of advice is do something, don't put it off. Because before long, you will be 67 years old, and your back will hurt, and your knees aren't what they once were, and you don't have the confidence that you used to have in yourself. But mon told me that, and of course I never paid any attention, and why would anybody pay attention to me now, but do it. And when I say it, I mean not only plan to climb Everest with every other person on earth, but walk out the door, take that little walk with the dog, or sit down in the chair and watch the dog play, or take a drive down by the river, or when you go to your parking lot and have a little bit of time go on down to the river and listen to it go by and see if there's a bird down there and do those things i'm not going to be very organized about one two three but (laughs) (laughs) but i think do it and don't set too high a bar because you can scare yourself out of and delay yourself out of doing all the little things that become moments. And you won't know them. You you can't plan your moments. They just show up. And they show up in pretty weird places. You just never know. But you got to be available. So just make yourself available.
0: Okay, Mike, what song would you like to end your show with?
1: (laughs) All right, well, you've hammered all the pride that I ever had in me clear out now so we can expose the fleshy core and admit to Rocky Mountain High. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, I got nothing more to hide now. (laughs) Uh. Namaste,
0: Missoula, and my friends around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 103.3's locally harvested adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. The show premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream the show live online by visiting trail1033.com. The Trail Less Traveled is also a podcast available on all platforms, and you can view the full show archive, photography, and learn more about our outreach programs by visiting the official website, traillesstraveled.net. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world, but until next week, I encourage you to do something for Mother Earth, and also get outside, shred the gnar, because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. Hello there, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and I want to thank our sponsor, New West Knifeworks. When you love the tools you use, everyday chores become a joy. A finely crafted knife is an extension of the hand that welds it. That's the motivating idea behind New West Works founder corey milligan milligan moved to jackson hole to pursue the good life in his early 20s to earn a living while enjoying the outdoors he worked as a line cook in local restaurants his interest in cutlery came from the desire to make a knife that would better express his love of cooking New West knife works was born out of that passion a passion which continues to keep the company on the cutting edge All of New West Knifeworks' culinary, hunting, and recreational knives are made in the Tetons with the finest American steel and tested by the professional chefs, guides, anglers, and hunters of Jackson Hole. From the New York Times and Wall Street Journal to Bon Appetit and Forbes, top tastemakers appreciate cutlery that is as beautiful as it is useful. Visit newwestknifeworks.com.